A lung transplant is a serious and rarely performed operation. So imagine undergoing a successful, rare double lung transplant. Initially, I was scheduled for one lung, but when they saw the damage that was done to the other lung, they were thinking, okay, well, it doesn't make sense to come back in two or three years and replace the other one. So we may as well go on and replace both lungs. That's Pastor Joseph Kyles talking about a life-saving operation six years ago that not only allowed him to survive, but to thrive and continue his life's work as a man of God. I'm Marian Shuck, your host for Let's Talk Hope, a podcast devoted to sharing stories and turning tragedies into triumphs. I'm delighted today to have with me Pastor Joseph Kyles, a double lung transplant recipient and his wife, Pastor Crystal Kyles. Today, we really want to talk about your journey. Can you help us understand how this all started? It's um, quite a journey, uh, to say the least, Marion. I actually had a cough that I could not get rid of. And my wife kept saying, why don't you go and get that checked out? Finally, I did go to the hospital to have it checked out. And the doctors kind of misdiagnosed me a couple of times. And on one particular visit, I was referred to a specialist. And that specialist did a lung um, biopsy. And you gotta know that was really scary for me because that was the first time I ever had any kind of surgery at all. And I wasn't really prepped for it. (laughs) So uh, I went in thinking they were gonna stick a tube down my throat. actuality, I had a full-blown surgery, so it was it was quite traumatic. But uh, after the surgery, uh, the doctor was very panicked, and uh, he was very concerned, and he was like, man, you know what? I think you're going to have to have a transplant. And I'm looking at him like, what? Man, I just ran around the building before I came in the hospital. What do you mean? So he was like, but you, uh, I think you have this disease. It's called interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. He said, you would be the youngest patient I've ever seen with this disease. And I said, well, you know what, doctor, you might need to go back and check your sample again. I just don't see this. And so he was like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to send you to Wisconsin and let them evaluate you up there. And so I did. I ended up having to go to Wisconsin for a couple of days. And of course, every test known to man, they basically said, we don't think you qualify at the moment for a transplant, but we're going to monitor you. And it was about, mm, oh, I want to say eight years later, maybe nine years later, that I actually uh, ended up because of a blood clot needing a double lung transplant. Wow. Well, I'm going to say this. I don't know if it's an urban legend, but the legend says that most men owe their lives to their wives because they notice things. And the wives, as you mentioned, Pastor Crystal noted that, you know, you need to get your cough checked out. So I just want to (laughs) say it might not be an urban legend after all. And I will say it's interesting that you didn't present with any other symptoms like shortness of breath and uh, the ability to stand or to walk 
for quite a while in that you seem to just go on for eight years. Did you have any symptoms? Um, did you see that there was a progression to needing a transplant? You know what, Marion, when it finally did come on, it did come on very quickly. It progressed, I would say, probably within a period of a year. And the way it happened was we were actually in Wisconsin, up in the Dells. And I believe maybe that added altitude may have had something to do with it. But I had never experienced a blood clot before. They started in my leg and ended up in my lungs. And so the damage that the blood clot did to the lungs, which were already damaged by the IPF, then caused the doctors to say, okay, we got to hurry up and get you on the transplant list now. When the onset did happen, it happened very quickly. And is it rare to need a double lung transplant? At the time I had mine, which was about six years ago, it was rare to have to have both. As a matter of fact, initially I was scheduled for one lung, but when they saw the damage that was done to the other lung, they were thinking, okay, well, it doesn't make sense to come back in two or three years and replace the other one. So we may as well go on and place both, replace both lungs. And what was that like waiting for the transplant? Actually, the getting ready for the transplant was just crazy. Believe it or not, it took me about six months just to get, you get a checklist. So, you know, your teeth have to be healthy. You have to be a certain weight. You have to have um, psychological evaluations. There's a lot to the process. Probably most people could go through it, I I would think, in three months, 90 days maybe. But it took me a year. And part of the problem I had was before I even had the transplant, I was on several medications, including an anti-rejection. So I would go into dentist office and ask for an evaluation and they would look at my med list and say, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but would you leave the facility now, please? You are an insurance risk. Why is that? Because I was on anti-rejection and I was taking several other medications in preparation for the transplant and the dentist just did not want that kind of liability. And it took me a very long time to find a dentist that would clear me so that I could go in and have this transplant done. And it required that I have had uh, several of my teeth removed and, you know, they wanted to take them all out. I was like, nah, man, ain't nothing wrong. <laughs> That's not wrong with my teeth. Don't take them all out. You know, leave me a couple. <laughs> so they... That's very interesting. That's why I love this podcast is because we learn something different every time I talk to someone. And this has been very eye opening for me because I I realized that, you know, the checklist, obviously, and I realized, you know, that, you know, the dentist is one of them. But it's interesting that there aren't more dentists who focus on transplant patients that you would have to wait for a year to really get someone to clear you. Yes. It it took between the time I met the dentist and actually had the teeth removed and the things that needed to be done. It it took about a year. 
And so a lot of people really talk about once they get cleared, they're on the transplant list, it then becomes a waiting game. What was waiting like for you and Pastor Crystal? You know what, Miriam, we were really, really fortunate in the sense that I was only on the list for days instead of months or years. As a matter of fact, when the hospital called me, I thought I was being punked. <laughs> when the lady called, I said, okay, okay, let me put you up to this. Which one of my friends had, which radio station is this? I am not, and she was laughing and she was like, sir, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. This is serious. I am genuinely calling you from Loyola Hospital. Please know that we have found an organ for And I was like, I just signed the papers. The ink isn't dry yet. Are you serious? They're like, yes, you need to come on in and we need to get this done. Evidently, your cases of such severity that you need to come on in. And I was, I mean, and I, I said to Crystal, I said, Crystal, it's the call. She was, the call? I was like, yeah, the call. She was like, the, the call? I was like, yeah, the, the call. <laughs> So we did that for about five minutes. And then uh, we both kind of said, let's go do it. Let's do it. Okay, let's go. So, you know, uh, I threw some things in the bag and we were off. So let me ask you a question. Um, If you can think back to before you had the transplant and understanding what your lung capacity was like, what was it like when you woke up with new lungs? Could you notice the difference? Right away. Okay. Tell us about it. Immediately. Before the transplant, uh, I hadn't gotten to the place where I was on oxygen 24-7. After the transplant, I remember waking up and I had a uh, breathing tube in. And I remember trying to pull it out. And the uh, nurse kept saying, no, 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 you can't pull that out. You can't pull that out. And the doctor said, well, if you can breathe, let's, you know, take it out. And they took it out. They actually took it out. And I could breathe. I could. I mean, it was like like it never, ever happened. Wow. And how long were you tethered to the oxygen? After the surgery? No, no, before. I went from very little oxygen, maybe, you know, sometime during the day, most of the time with activity, to needing oxygen 24-7. And I'd say that was probably over a year and a half period. Wow, that's great. So you went, you got your lungs, you woke up, you were able to breathe. And what has it been like these last six years since you've gotten your transplant? Well, the first two and a half years were amazing. First three years were amazing. And I'd say after three years, I started experiencing more of the bad days. You know, everybody has their good days, bad days, but uh, transplant recipients usually have a more bad days, not more bad days than good days. Let me explain that. I have days where I'm challenged in a sense that I may have shortness of breath some days. Now, this has just started happening maybe in the last six months. And the doctors are working with me now to determine if they can figure out why or what's going on. But for the most part, I would say that any transplant recipient would tell you, regardless to the number of bad days you have, it's better to be here with a bad day than to not be here at all. 
Absolutely. I talked to someone last night. I was at an event and that leads me into our second part of our conversation is how we met, you know, at an outreach event. And she said to me, oh, it's better to be seen than viewed. Right. So as in having a home going viewing. Right. (laughs) I thought that was that was very appropriate. And she's actually waiting for a kidney as well. She had a kidney and she had a rejection and now she's on the list again. But it's uh, very important to to really advocate not only for yourself, um, but advocate for others who are waiting. And that's really how we met through an outreach event. I think that we just clicked. We clicked with Pastor Crystal and we went on to tell your story. Tell us why it's so important for you and Pastor Crystal to really advocate for gift of hope and organ and tissue donation. Well, let me let me step in for a little bit. How you all doing today? <laughs> Good. Happy to have you here today. Well, I can probably say some of his shortness of breath is because of the extra little cake and desserts and stuff that he likes to eat. You know, when I don't eat that, so you know it's probably a little bit of that belly weight. But we're going to work on that and try to get that down. <laughs> on the next note, I can say this: that I, I know that someone's hardship was my blessing. And that family that lost their loved one allowed me to continue and my family to continue to keep our loved one. So first of all, we say thanks for everybody who uh, agrees to be an organ tissue donor. So for that, I truly say thank you for this extra six years that I have had the opportunity to have with my husband. Because like he said, by that time, he was on oxygen every day. You know, the lungs began to constantly deteriorate. I think a lot of that came from probably some stress too, you know, just the the thought of, man, my lungs are working. I can't live without lungs. I think a lot of that was stress that caused uh, some extra deterioration, you know, the hardship, the heartache, the fear, all of that. So even when he got that call, like you said, we thought it was a prank. And I thought, you know, he was telling me then, I thought, you know, because people just call and pray. So I'm thinking it's just somebody calling the praise. So I'm still trying to fix my business. So he kept calling me in there. It's the call, it's the call, it's the call. So, you know, we finally realized it. And then at that moment, we looked at each other because, again, fear stuck struck in because you're saying, okay, do we really want to do this? What if something happens? What if the surgery don't go right? Maybe we shouldn't do Maybe we should change our mind. So you get all those crazy thoughts you know, in your heart, and your mind, when it's that moment, they tell you to pack your bag and get to the hospital. But again, it, it has definitely been a journey. Um, he does have good days, bad days, but there's still days, you know, and a lot of it is, come on, Joe, let's get out of here. Let's, you're not going to sit around this house. Let's go. Because as long as you have breath in your body, we out of this house and we're going. So I thank God that he listens to me and uh, that he, you know, presses his way. He presses his way and he continues to do that and share. We have some other people that we met, some people who were afraid to get their transplant. He talked to them, you know, met some people through their loved ones and was able to talk to other people and to share with them. Hey, I've been out four years, five years, six years, you know, whenever the time was, we talked to these people and he let them know, get the transplant, get it. If you're a doctor and you have a medical team that is working with you and they're trying to share with you to get that transplant, so you can have longer life, have better quality of life the years that you are here, do it. So he has definitely, definitely shared his experience 
with um, other people who may have health issues and their doctors and physicians have told them that they need transplant. So Mary and I had a, um, I had the Loyola's media department contact me and they said, um, Pastor, we have this gentleman, you need to meet him. And I said, um, oh, okay, uh, I need to come to the hospital to meet him? They were like, yes, you need to come and meet him. So I went to the hospital thinking I was just going to meet a patient. When I got to the room, it was uh, two gentlemen sitting on the sofa, and uh, there was a young lady sitting in the chair. And I said, oh, the patient must be in the washroom. They said, no, that's him sitting over there. I said, he looks fine to me. Uh, you're a patient? He said, I'm a double lung transplant recipient. I said, oh, my God, so am I. He said, I know. He said, my sister sitting in that chair over there read about your story in the local newspaper in our town in Ohio. And my sister read the article and said, well, my God, if God will do it for him, he'll do it for my brother. He at the time was in hospice in Ohio. Called Loyola Hospital and said, hey, I heard about this pastor that you guys gave a transplant to. And my brother is in the same condition. And Loyola told them to come on. And that gentleman came to Chicago and got a transplant. And I think it was within seven days. And uh, she said, we wanted to meet you and thank you for your for your testimony. And thank you for sharing your story. Because if, if I had not seen that story, I wouldn't have been able to encourage my brother. Because he had given up. You know, he was in hospice. He had said, forget it, you know. So stories like that keep me going. I love sharing my testimony with people, letting them know, you know, I consider myself to be the miracle man. I know that this was a miracle from God. Uh, had not I got that transplant, I may not have been here today. Absolutely. God is good all the time. And it's just been amazing to have you as our advocate. Both of you have been staunch advocates of Gift of Hope, and you continue to share your story you know, at many of our outreach programs, at many of our events. And so we greatly appreciate that because you're absolutely correct. You know, in the African-American community, we still believe a lot of myths and misconceptions around organ, eye and tissue donation. And so having people like you to be able to share their stories helps us help the community, right? Because a lot of people think that organ and tissue donation is a good thing. They just don't want to be a part of it, right? But fortunately, as I found out three years ago, you don't have a choice about whether you're a part of it or not, because death comes to all of us at some time. And it, and it came to my husband. And so I think it's very important that we share our stories. So thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for you're really being able to educate the African-American community and other communities as well. And so why do you think it's important to not only share the story, you know, because one, you all are pastors, right? And so you believe in saving everyone. You believe that we are our neighbor's keepers and this is the true essence of what God would want. How do you go about just having those conversations and making sure people understand, even in your ministry and outside of your ministry, the importance of organ and tissue donation, especially for communities of color? 
whenever I have the opportunity, I talk to people about the realities of being buried with treasures. When you die, if your organs can keep someone else from dying, why wouldn't you do that? The only answer you can give me is that you fear that something will happen to you if you don't have your organs after you're dead. But they are of no use to you. And that's the reality. They are of absolutely no use to you, but they are useful to others. I forget how many people's lives you can save by donating your organs, but I know it's it's quite a few. So, you know, again, I stress the point, why wouldn't you? You know, it's not it's not going to benefit you to take the organs with you. I know a lot of times that in our community in particular, people are under the impression that their lungs, their, their organs are going to be sold, that, you know, organs are never, you know, I'm, I'm black, but I'm going to be giving my organs to a white person or I'm white and I'm going to be giving up. And that's to me, I wouldn't care if you were orange. <laughs> if you save my life, save my life, you know. And I think, too, also, it's about value. If you value human life, then this has to be an option for you. This has to be something that you consistently think about and talk with your family about. There's absolutely no reason that every person on this planet shouldn't be a organ and tissue donor. I mean, I'm a donor. If they'll take whatever organs they can use when I'm gone, they can have them. Considering these are somebody else's lungs, I don't know if they can pass them on again or not, but I don't see the objection being reasonable. I mean, there are just so many people in need of organs and so many people whose lives could be extended. I am a, a, an adoptive parent. I have three adopted children. Just think about what it would have been like for my children and my wife if I were not here. What would it be like for them growing up without their father? My church growing up without its pastor. My community without a leader. There are so many significant things that I have been able to accomplish since my transplant. I am even now still currently working uh, very hard for my community. I'm an advocate for things like the uh, police and fire training center that's being built on the west side of Chicago. I'm working very closely to make sure that African-American contractors get work on projects like that. I've been doing that for about 20, 20, almost 25 years now. Erase the last six years of my work simply because someone thought that it was not prudent to donate um, their deceased relatives' organs. I'm not trying to make light of this like it's an easy decision. I just think it's a reasonable decision. I think it's one of those decisions that if you pray about and really think about, it just makes sense. Pastor, that is so moving because you've given me like two nuggets, right? One, don't bury treasures. And two, there should be no reasonable objection to organ, eye, and tissue donation. 
how eloquent was that? And thank you for that, because as you mentioned, a lot of myths and misconceptions swirl around and people believe urban legends about organ and tissue donation. You mentioned the one that people of color don't want their organs going to somebody white. You mentioned the fire department and the police who are so important to helping us continue the organ and tissue donation process by being good EMT and emergency assistance in helping people in their time of a a traumatic injury or a car accident or something like that. So it's very important because, as you mentioned, it's sort of like a circle, right? We're all connected together. And so it's important that we help each other. But I really like Don't Bury Treasures. That is, wow, so, so awe-inspiring. But then, you know, I've been doing this for 13 years, working at Gift of Hope, and I've been talking about organ and tissue donation. I've been passionate about organ and tissue donation. But we talk about how to dispel myths and misconceptions. But I think going forward, it's really about, there's just no reasonable objection to organ and tissue donation. That, that would be my response, Marion. That just, it's really, to me, one of those things, again, you know, no one wants to lose a loved one. That goes without say. And uh, as being a pastor, of course, I am very acquainted with death and very acquainted with end of life situations. And it's always something that I talk to people about. It, sometimes I've had people give objections. Now is not the time. No, well, now is the time to talk about it because every minute counts once this person is deceased. Have you considered organ and tissue donor? Is this person a donor? Have you considered it? You know, when I hear people who are close to death because they need a kidney, and I'm saying all of these people that we're hearing about who are dying for various reasons, imagine if all of those people were donors. We would have a surplus of organ and tissue for people who are in need. And we would not have these lists. I was speaking to someone, trying to encourage them. They were getting discouraged because they had been on the list for so long. And I was saying, you know what? You cannot give up hope. There's someone out there who is sensitive to the fact that there are people waiting for organs. It's always my prayer that God will touch the hearts of those who are losing loved ones to think about organ and tissue donor. People who are waiting for organs. And uh, until we get to a place in our society where I think education starts much earlier, I think that this is a conversation that needs to start very young. I, I do not see a reason to keep that from children. Unfortunately, children die as well. And, you know, most of this started for me, Marion, when uh, my cousin Chad had a, a heart transplant. Chad, the first real, how should I say, transplant recipient that I had any contact or connection with. It was after Chad received that his heart transplant that I checked the box, you know, my driver's license and wanted to become an organ donor. Uh, never knowing that I would be someone who needed an organ. 
people have to advocate for themselves. So I'm glad that your friend, you told your friend not to give up hope and maybe turn the corner and, and you know, what are some things that can be done to help that person advocate for themselves? Um, tell their stories like you told your story, get the information out there, talk to your families. A lot of times, Uh, when people need kidneys or they need livers, they don't talk to their families or even ask. We have these superstitions about asking our families because we don't want to burden them. You made a point earlier. I think Pastor Crystal made a point earlier. What would the burden be if you weren't here, right? If I'm not here, What is the burden to my family, to my loved ones? So what do you have to lose by asking your network or your village or your family to get tested and possibly save your life? I would ask. You know, I'm one of those people, Marion. I I get invited to a lot of events. And one of the first things I try to do at that event is let people know I am a double lung transplant recipient. But I would not be here if someone had not donated an organ. I find a way to slip that into the conversation. So I think that we all have to be advocates and we have to do it at all times. Absolutely. And I so appreciate that about you. I just wanted to know what it was like those eight years that you were waiting to see whether you would progress to ultimately needing the transplant, what was it like for Pastor Crystal as your wife, as the one who was like your caretaker? What was that like for her and the family? Um, well, there was a lot going on because, you know, the economy crashed and it just was all of that stuff. We had two young babies that we had. And one of the things I told God, I said, look, I'm not ready to be a widow. So whatever you got to do, of course, at first you're praying, God, fix it, fix it, fix it, make his lungs new. You know, you're praying all of that. And then one day the Holy Spirit said, don't box me in. So I began to open up. I said, God, look, however you got to do it, if he have to get a transplant, because at first, you know, you don't want to think about that. If it has to happen like that, then God, whatever you, you know your will is, let it be done so that long as we can have a better quality of life. And it was kind of tough. You know, I gained weight. A lot of my hair came out. You know, I got my hair cut real short, still wearing it with the natural look because my focus was him and the kids. And I lost a little focus of myself. And I, you know, eating fast foods and, you know, just doing all that kind of crazy stuff, not exercising, not really, you know, looking at myself, taking care of myself, still trying to be cute, even though I was fat. I still was cute. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I know that I kind of put myself on the back burner to make sure that he had everything. And, you know, the kids making sure that, you know, just they learn how to take out the garbage and learn how to do this and do that. Because I didn't want him to have to carry anything because of that pressure that would be on his lungs. So once the um, transplant happened, of course, you know, you still have to walk through some time where he has to heal and you know, keep people away from him so he wouldn't get a cold or anything like that. So it was just a lot. Then maybe about after that year, going into that second year, I say, okay, it's time for me to get back to me. So I began to, you know, do do my weight loss journey. I lost about 65 pounds. And, you know, I, I began to focus a little bit on me because he can kind of handle himself. The kids were a little older and I was able to get back into my groove. 
Yes, I had to make sure the church was going forward. Yes, we had a private school that we had opened up, Christian school. I thank God for my staff. I thank God for the church members. I wasn't overwhelmed. I just had to make sure things were happening. And I'm the type of person, I don't care about delegating. I will tell you what to do, how to do it, where to do it, and you better get it done. It was a journey, but I wouldn't trade it. I'm glad that my husband is here. It definitely taught us to pray more and to trust God and to open the door to however he wants to do it. Not so much how we want it done, but how he wants to do it. I always remind God, and I get through, I always remind God of the scripture without Hezekiah when he had received the death sentences, the death sentence, and he turned his face to the wall and he reminded God of all the things that he had done. And I sometimes would turn my face to the wall and I would tell God, about all the things my husband had done, how he would go into the alleys and try to talk to the people on drugs and just the midnight walks and all the things, feeding the people, getting clothes, just all the stuff that he has done over the years in ministry. And I reminded God about that and I would turn my face to the wall and I said, God, if nothing else, extend him 15 years. So I just praise God that we are in year six. And uh, we're going to keep this party rolling. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just want to thank you both. That is an a w- amazing way to end our conversation because, you know, I know I've known you guys for about six years and you guys have been total mentors and total advisors for me. And I just appreciate the way both of you wrap your arms around the community, you wrap your arms around people who are in need, people who are homeless and children. And I just want to thank you for that. More importantly, you know, just want to say many blessings for you and your continued health, Pastor Kyles. And then Pastor Crystal, many continued blessings for you as a caregiver, as someone who has seen your husband through a double lung transplant and you guys are so happy and so uh, gregarious that it's just a delight to have had you on the show today and I thank you and appreciate you for stopping by. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Hope. We encourage you to start the conversation about organ and tissue donation with your loved ones today and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor on giftofhope.org. Hello, Tina Montgomery, Supervisor for Community Outreach. In my role, I'm responsible for raising awareness and educating the community about organ, eye, and tissue donation. Daily, I'm asked a host of questions about the donation process and how it works. So we've decided to put them all on a wheel and give it a spin and answer some questions from the audience. Oh, the wheel is spinning. That's a really good one. Here we go. Question one. Will donation disfigure my loved one's body after death? The answer to that question is, when you donate your organs and tissue, it is done with the utmost care, dignity, and respect. The body is never disfigured and donation does not delay any funeral arrangements. Thank you so much for that question. We're going to put more questions up on the wheel and spin them again during the next episode. So thank you all so much for learning more about donation facts. Let's Talk Hope was produced by Rivet. And if you'd like to hear more great podcasts, please visit rivet360.com.